0: This series discusses crime scenes, violence, autopsy, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. This is the second episode in a six part series. In order to raise money for the nonprofit Season of Justice, we're joining forces with our friends from Moms and Mysteries for the next month. We have a combined goal to raise $3,500 for the Season of Justice Family Grants Initiative. You can learn how to help support this campaign at the end of the episode. This is The Fall Line. Last time, we began in North Augusta, a town sitting on the edge of the Georgia line, just barely positioned into Aiken County, South Carolina. This area, in and around Aiken County, has been the setting for many of the cases featured in our show. Three families in particular, the loved ones of Moses Williams, Larry Sanders Jr., and Travis Smith, have found themselves tied together in an alliance. They're regular attendees at demonstrations to draw attention to gun violence in the area and to raise awareness of cold cases. Our last episode focused on the early life of Travis Smith, who was born and raised in North Augusta. In September of 2012, his life revolved around a number of things, his plans to return to school, his efforts to rebuild a strong connection with his daughter, who turned nine that April, and his part in caring for his maternal grandmother, who had dementia and needed someone to look out for her when Travis's mother was at work. He was also working in lawn care and spent his free time playing basketball with his best friend Desmond and with his other friends like Gerard and Walter, who you heard from last episode. As they told us, they viewed Travis as a mentor figure. He was willing to take extra time to help them as teens, whether it was to improve their basketball games or give them life advice about school, relationships, or their social lives. One thing that everyone stressed to us was that Travis lived a very drama-free life. No one we spoke to knew of any conflicts or issues that he had with anyone in North Augusta or in the Ridgeview Manor apartment complex. That's where he often hung out and where he spent the last night of his life, where he was shot in the early morning hours of September 29, 2012. If you'll recall, that night, Travis was spending time with a new female acquaintance and some of his longtime friends outside an apartment on the ground floor of the complex. The apartment was rented by the woman and by a roommate with a child, so there were three residents in total. We told you last time that Travis's best friend, Desmond Wilson, said that he seemed a little off that night. He originally interviewed with our colleague Renetta Debose from WJBF, and when we spoke with her, she summarized events this way.
1: There's there's actually one friend who we spoke with, and he said that something wasn't right with his demeanor. He noticed that something odd was going on, you know, the night leading up to his murder. So he noticed that you know, something, something was odd is the word that he used. He said that his friend even tweeted that something just didn't feel right. And then he said he did ask him what was wrong and Travis said nothing. And so he remembered him pacing back and forth in and out of this apartment that they were visiting. But he said, you know, he was very private. He kept it to himself. And maybe at the time he didn't think it was that serious. So, you know, if you think about some of the things that bother you that maybe maybe someone said something or did something, you may be concerned about it, you may think about it, and maybe you should do something more like call the police, but you don't. you know you you blow
0: it off and you say, "Well, maybe it'll go away." According to witnesses who were around that night, Travis had moved between the apartment and the breezeway throughout the evening and, per multiple news reports, was standing outside with his female acquaintance when they were approached by two figures. According to the Augusta Chronicle, quote, A witness said she was talking with Smith in the breezeway in front of an apartment when two men in hooded sweatshirts walked up. It's never made clear in any of the articles we read why precisely the female witness ran. She may have seen that the men had a weapon or weapons, or it could have simply been the fact that, as we noted last episode, the men had obscured their faces. The Chronicle reported that she ran for her apartment and that she heard what sounded like gunfire as she made it inside. According to the FOIA that we received, the official record from North Augusta Public Safety, or NAPS, begins at 2.47 a.m. when five officers responded to the Ridgeview Manor apartments, quote, in reference to shots fired. Now, it's not totally clear but we believe that the call was made by Travis's female acquaintance versus her roommate. The caller initially said, quote, She heard a shot fired and was unsure if it came from within her apartment or outside. She stayed in communication with dispatch while officers were en route. While officers were en route, dispatch advised the complainant, stated her door was unsecured. Officers approached on foot and found the door to the apartment ajar but could not see inside, end quote. When the officers arrived, the report mentions that they could hear at least one woman crying. When the officers entered the apartment, they found her, quote, on the living room floor, on her hands and knees, crying. She was, per the report, quote, escorted to the door and out of the residence. That's when officers saw a second figure in the room, a person who seemed to be seated on the couch, but it was soon clear that the figure, Travis, had been shot. There was blood on the couch and, quote, his upper torso. Later, it would be mentioned that he had a bullet wound to the upper torso. An Augusta Chronicle article later noted that, quote, forensic testing had revealed that the weapon was either a 38 or 357 caliber. When police checked the rest of the apartment, they found a woman and child hiding in the back bedroom. They were safely evacuated. No one else was present. The report notes that when Travis was searched, he was found to be unarmed. The initial police report notes that when the witness was initially questioned, she said that, quote, three subjects approached and she ran inside and immediately heard a gunshot, end quote. Every other report that we have specifically seen says that two persons of interest were involved and not three. When we reached out to NAPS for clarification, Lt. Alan C. Swan let us know that, ultimately, conflicting statements make it possible that there could have been two or three suspects at the scene. So while most media mentions two suspects, if you or someone you know saw three men who fit the description that we've discussed, that is, dressed in hoodies with the strings pulled tight to disguise their faces, please. Don't discount your sightings as unrelated. You may have seen the shooter or shooters. There's no real explanation of how Travis made it inside the apartment, but from what we've been told by his friends and family, the assumption is that he attempted to escape the shooters. He followed his acquaintance inside and died from his wound there before help could arrive. He was, as far as we know, actually shot outside not inside the residence. When we reached out to Augusta Public Safety for a statement or interview regarding Travis's case, we received one from the current officer assigned via our official contact. The current officer, Sergeant Chris Lind, was assigned to Travis's case much later on. Per the response from North Augusta, the original responding officers are no longer employed by NAPS and thus are unavailable to comment on the case. We'll provide that full statement just a little later in the episode when we get into the difficulty of the investigation. Last episode, you heard from Travis's friend, Gerard, who lived in Ridgeview Manor. He told us that he heard about the shooting soon after police arrived. He'd seen Travis that night. They talked about Gerard's relationship issues and Travis had given him some advice. But Gerard had gone home to bed early because he had
2: to work in the morning. I woke up, I had to get a call. And it was like, hey man, something, something happened to trap. And I was like, huh? It was like something happened to trap. So I was like, "I right, bet. So when I woke up. You know, I got up, I called my homeboy, I was like, hey man, this is something happened to Trav. And uh, it was just like weird, man. And I called my other homeboy, he wouldn't pick up the phone. And I kept calling, so, you know, we walked to the top of the building, because I lived in the E building at the time, and it happened in the B building, so we walked up there, and I seen, like, police. I ain't never had a friend that got murdered before, so it was just, like, when I walked up there, you know, So I didn't really have no identification, like, he had no ID. We were like, hey, man, we up there, and he was like, we don't know, y'all know y'all have any idea, and my homeboy put up a picture of Trav on Facebook, and that's how we found out, man. It was just like it was sad, and like it hit me different because I ain't never lost a friend because so I ain't know how to deal with that. Not even family. Anymore. So it was just like when it happened, I lost it because like he was like like a like a father to me, like a big brother. I was just lost, and I was just like asking God, like tell me this is a dream.
0: As we told you last episode, Travis's older sister, Taisha, was at home in Aiken, asleep, when he was shot. She was awoken by an early morning phone call from her aunt, who told her that she needed to get over to North Augusta immediately. At first, her aunt did not want to tell her why, but Taisha demanded to know, and her aunt broke the news. Travis had been shot, that he'd been killed. What Taisha can remember, is that she just started screaming. She left her house as quickly as she could and headed for Ridgeview Manor. And when she arrived, police and emergency services were already on scene and a crowd had gathered.
3: And then that's when I seen all the people. It was a bunch of whole crowd of people just standing out there in the apartment complex. And I walked past and I just seen some of my family members out there, some of his friends, people who stayed in the apartment residence. And I just remember that scene I think I stayed there until they brought the body out of the apartment. But I don't think I saw that because I think some of my family members and were covering me so I wouldn't be able to see. Taisha's
0: first concern was trying to understand what had happened, why Travis was there, who'd been present, and who had seen what. But now, even a decade later, that's been harder for his family and for police to put together than you might think. As we told you last episode, Taisha was not as familiar with Travis's friends as she'd been in the past, so it took her some time to track everyone down and speak to them. Friends like Gerard and Walter, who you heard from in this episode, and Travis's best friend Desmond. And still, they were not able to tell her much. Desmond, Walter, and Gerard all told us the same thing that they told Taisha then. They didn't know of any issues that Travis was having and they'd never met the female acquaintance who called police before that evening. And Taisha still has not been able to establish anything further about their relationship. It is noted, though, in an Aiken Standard article from November 2012 that, quote, the public safety director said that they had looked closely at the young woman who was with Smith and they had cleared her of involvement. That same article establishes the major issues that have plagued Travis's case from its first hours to present day. The precise detail of the order of events and the motive for his shooting. As Taisha explained to us.
3: So it's really, we really don't know what happened. We just know like from, I guess what, the girls told the police that the two men approached them, started shooting with hoodies on and the rest pretty much is a blur.
0: So, Taisha had very limited contact with the woman who Travis was hanging out with that night and wasn't able to ascertain more information than we've shared with you here. The last minutes of Travis's life have remained a question mark, and that seems to be the same issue that law enforcement continues to have today. When our colleague Renetta DeBose of WJBF spoke with a representative from NAPS, Lieutenant Thornton, he told her, quote, What we're still trying to figure out is the pool of witnesses that may have been out at the time of the morning that could have provided us with information specific to the identity of the shooters, if it was one shooter or multiple shooters involved. It's not uncommon with today's technology that we have opportunities, perhaps that maybe something will come to light. As of right now, we don't have that technology or we haven't had that break in the case. However, Lt. Thornton said something back in 2012 that we think is key. After Taisha organized a Stop the Violence rally, there were hundreds of people in attendance, which gave her hope then. Back then, Lt. Thornton was quoted in the Aiken Standard as saying, "...public safety believes we have evidence that will help us confirm the shooter." In regard to the investigation done in 2012, here's that statement provided to us by NAPS. Our only alteration to this statement is to omit the specific apartment number to protect the privacy of possible current residents. Quote, on 9-29-2012, at approximately 0247 hours, NAPS responded to 419 Bradleyville Road, Ridgeview Manor Apartments, in reference to a shooting that occurred. Upon arriving on scene, officers located the victim, Travis Smith, deceased on the couch in the living room area. The Criminal Investigations Division was notified and arrived on scene moments later. Investigators contacted the SLED Crime Scene Unit to process the scene and began interviewing witnesses. Forensic evidence was collected by SLED and sent to their headquarters in Columbia, South Carolina for analysis. Over the next several months, Investigators interviewed several individuals and followed up with family members of the victim. Investigators encountered several individuals who refused to cooperate with law enforcement out of fear of retaliation or just did not want to be involved at all. Investigators received possible leads regarding a suspect or suspects and conducted interviews of these subjects. Throughout the investigation, no substantial leads or evidence were produced to positively identify and charge an individual with the murder of Mr. Smith. Over time, the case went cold. Investigators continued to follow any possible leads in this case. North Augusta Public Safety produced press releases and sought assistance from Crime Stoppers of the Midlands in hopes of obtaining further information. North Augusta Department of Public Safety will continue to follow any and all leads pertaining to this case. If anyone has any new information that could lead to an arrest, they are encouraged to contact Criminal Investigations Division at 803-441-4274, end quote. Based on both Lieutenant Thornton's statement and the evidence sent to SLED, that's the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, we imagine that forensics that could identify the killer or the killer's weapon exist in this case, likely tied to Travis's bullet wound and or possibly a casing or the round itself. But in order to connect those dots, the investigation needs the pool of witnesses that Lieutenant Thornton mentioned to Renetta back in 2022. And there's been equal trouble in the search for motive two. In November of 2012, Law enforcement held a press conference that covered Travis's case. Then-Chief John Thomas said that they had, quote, looked into crime and gang connections but have found nothing to explain why two men in hoodies would approach the pair, who were standing in an open area, End quote. According to the Aiken Standards coverage of the presser, Travis had, quote, no history of crime, and while they were, quote, looking to establish a motive, they were coming up empty. And, that article noted, that was unusual in the department's experience. Per the standard, then-chief Thomas said that motive was usually fairly obvious, but, quote, this one makes you scratch your head. And that was of larger concern, because they'd followed the forensic leads as far as they could. As then-chief Thomas pointed out in a press conference, quote, it's almost like it was calculated and planned, We just can't figure out where they came from or what the intent of doing harm to this individual was. For some reason, there's information out there that people are reluctant to give us, and I really don't understand why. Desmond, Travis's best friend, thinks that the shooting might well have been connected to Travis's unease that night, but he has no way to tell for sure. A $1,000 reward was offered in the case, but per numerous news outlets, that offer did not result in resolution. And there was some talk that Travis's murder could have been random, maybe a robbery cut short when he somehow made his way inside the house, or even a case of mistaken identity. No one can say for sure. And that is what bothers Taisha the most. Within days of Travis's murder, she began working to help solve the crime herself. And she still doesn't have answers.
3: That's really what makes it hard, too, because, you know, it's always going to be hard losing someone you love so suddenly and so unexpected. But when you have no answers, you have no no clue as to why this random act happened. You don't know anything about the night. But well, that's the frustrating part. We just like to know, like, why... What happened? You know, was it a mistake? Let us know so we can understand the situation. You know, that's what just really makes it hard. Without not like not knowing anything at all, it's just cold. It's like no leads, nothing to go on. We don't know why. We don't know who. We just we don't know if it was a random act or we don't. We just really don't know. We know nothing at all. Did they think he was someone else, or was it the wrong place at the wrong time, or was it just some lunatic out there who just decided to do this, or? Because being with his demeanor, his character, he didn't go around, you know, bullying people or looking for confrontations or, you know, starting trouble. It was not in his character because, you know, some people can be in situations where they're the aggressor or they're picking on people or bothering people. And, you know, they, they don't have a good reputation. They have bad blood. But he didn't have bad blood with anybody. So that's why it was so surprising when this happened, because we were like, you know, why would somebody do this? Because everybody knows the kind of person he is and everybody knows he doesn't bother anyone. So why would this happen? That's that's, that's the puzzling part.
0: Taisha's worry is that as the years go on, it's more difficult to investigate her brother's death, that the first 48 hours were probably the most important, and she doesn't know what was and wasn't discovered all those years ago. But she is sure that there are people in her community who must know something, who were witnesses to the actual shooting or found out about it afterward. That, she says, is how her brother's case is going to get solved. Without leads developed in the initial weeks, they need people willing to come forward and to say something.
3: Like, if you know anything, even if you don't even think it's significant, because some people might have saw something and they'd be like, well, no, that ain't not matter, that ain't nothing, or... Um... You know, just anything you can think of that may just, because the little smallest thing might be something that might jumpstart or might, you know, turn on a light bulb and somebody be like, well, I saw the same thing. If it was a mistake, you know, maybe something and you want to come forward and clear yourself, like, well, oh, you know, I didn't mean for this to happen. You know, he wasn't the person that it was meant for. Just let someone know we need to know what happened to our loved one.
0: But Taisha knows that people will forget. She knows about the news cycle and the fact that there have been more murders in North Augusta and Aiken County since Travis died. After all, she's the one who's helped to organize many of the Stop the Violence rallies that have taken place since Travis's murder. The first one was in November of 2012, exactly two months after Travis was shot. Back then, Taisha told the Aiken Standard, quote, we're going to be talking about what's going on in this community, We're letting the families of some of these victims know that they have not been forgotten. We still remember these people. We still remember that there's somebody out there that's responsible for it. Since then, Taisha's name has appeared over and over in the local papers. She's quoted about organizing flyer distribution and social media groups for the missing and the murdered. For years, Taisha ran a nonprofit She actually incorporated Travis's childhood nickname into its name, Team Bosky. The goal was to support other families. While the nonprofit is on hiatus for a little while, that has not slowed down her participation in rallies for the missing and murdered, memorials for Travis, and anti-gun rallies. In February of 2023, while in attendance at an anti-violence rally, Taisha explained, quote, I just go around and speak just to try and keep his case alive and keep his memory alive, and I just hope that people will continue to be proactive in the community. Don't forget the people who've lost their lives. It's a lot of unsolved cases in Aiken County, and we must not let this die. The Post and Courier wrote that Taisha urged tipsters and any unsolved crimes to come forward. She said, quote, no amount of information is insignificant no matter how long it's been. At another event covered by the Aiken Standard, Taisha said, quote, When stuff like this happens, it's your duty as a neighbor and as a citizen to tell. The bad thing about all this is, when stuff like this happens and people get away with it, they feel like they can do it again, because nobody is gonna tell. Don't let people intimidate you. These are your neighborhoods, and these are your streets. When we were working on this episode, we were fact-checking with Taisha via text. She apologized for taking a while to get back to us one afternoon because she'd been to an anti-gun violence event. This cause has simply become part of her
3: life. The subject of gun violence has become really dear to my heart, especially other unsolved cases in the area. And I've been in contact with people who have loved ones who still haven't had justice.
0: And there's another purpose, too, keeping Travis's face in front of the news cameras so that his story gets run every time Taisha can manage it. She carries his photo to rallies, wears T-shirts featuring his face. She tells his story. The point is to remind people not only of Travis, but that he has a family. Taisha told us that she finds it frustrating that her brother could spend so much time in the community, but that no one has come forward to share what they know because someone has to know something.
3: That's why I keep trying to keep in the media so maybe somebody will see and they see I'm keep trying and keep trying. Maybe my persistence will give them strength to come forward or whatever. The smallest little thing can, you never know, can trigger something. Like, you might know, like, well, she might as well give up because it's been so long and nobody said nothing. I said, no, as long as I can. I'm able to get around and I'm going to keep bringing it up. I think all the people who stayed out there when he was like, all his friends, all the people that were in that area when that happened have since moved on. It's like a whole totally different new people. Mostly all the young, the people that were there, they kind of like moved out. And then some people may not even know what happened. Like some people may be like, because I if I'm, I like if I when I do a piece on the news or something, I might see because I work in Walmart, I work in retail. And people, like some of my customers, you know, like, well, I saw you on the news. I'm sorry that happened to you. I didn't know that happened or things like that. Some people don't even know that it's out there.
0: So Taisha tries to attract as much attention as she can. And she employs Travis's favorite team, the Lakers, to help her with that. Whenever they put on an event in his honor, the Lakers' colors are front and center.
3: Anytime we do like a memorial or tribute for him, we always incorporate the colors purple and gold, gold, yellow, purple, and gold, or whatever, to try to symbolize the Laker colors. Because the last thing I did for him for his birthday, when I celebrated his birthday this year, I had something for him at the park. And that's for the colors of the decorations my daughter helped. She did the decorating, and the colors were purple We had purple and gold balloons and we had, you know, purple tablecloths and stuff. And we had purple, a a banner, a backdrop, and it had Kobe on the back. So we always try to incorporate the colors purple and gold.
0: And it's helped, but every year has been more difficult. That's something every family tells us. And that's why reporter Renetta DeBose connected with Taisha to feature her on the Cold Case Project.
1: Taisha seemed really passionate about getting one justice for her brother and the senseless killings that have taken place. She seemed very passionate, wanting to, you know, solve the case. And she she seemed like she had been working for quite some time. She seemed like she had been working for several years and had just not gotten the media coverage that she needed. It was always the newspaper here and there and it was always connected to the group of homicide cold case victims but she had been waiting on her moment to finally get one story that features her brother's case and and she's getting it
0: one thing about Renetta's features they don't end after a story airs for the last few years she's held a brunch for all the families who've been featured in the series Local law enforcement and cold case experts and forensic specialists, they all attend as well. And there's a chance for families to speak with representatives from their home departments who attend, including those who have victims' advocates. This year, the DNA Doe Project even provided a speaker who gave a presentation on investigative genetic genealogy for everyone in attendance. Taisha was there too. She told us,
3: We all came together, had a nice time, ate brunch, and we talked with a lot of, you know, detectives and agencies, like, you know, that can give us some good information.
0: That kind of ongoing connection is important. Make no mistake, Taisha is incredibly active in her brother's case. Generally, she says... She interacts with law enforcement when she contacts them or when she puts on her yearly events for his birthday and then reporters reach out to the department for comment. That is common in cold cases, but that level of engagement wears on anyone, especially after a decade, when they have a full-time job and a family. She needs the support of the community and resources like sustained direct contact with law enforcement, media support, and people who can share information about resources like family grants for awareness campaigns or support for families of the missing and directions on how to upload DNA to JetMatch. Events like Renetta's are incredibly important. Imagine if more of them existed. We talked a few months ago on the podcast about missing person days and the gap that they're filling. How many other gaps are there? Many of the families who've been on our show tell us the experience of advocating is incredibly important, but it's also isolating. You can feel like you're in it alone, that if your loved one doesn't stay in the public eye, it's your fault. But really, it's the responsibility of all of us our local communities, and all of us who follow crime to do part of this work. It is so easy to share or repost. Not just a new missing persons flyer, but a five-year anniversary article or a 10-year. When someone is hosting an event in your area, think about going or sharing or seeing what they need to make it happen. Engaging with the people nearest you is truly the biggest way to make a difference in solving a cold case and supporting a family who is waiting for those answers. Taisha knows that it's all going to come down to community because it's that North Augusta and Aiken region that she's counting on now. Someone out there knows what happened to Travis, whether it was a case of mistaken identity or a targeted attack.
3: He really didn't deserve, you know, the way he died. And he deserved justice. They were just finding their business outside, and two people came up to him, as far as I know. They weren't bothering anybody. They were uh, in the breezeway, just hanging out. Didn't find a gun, no kind of weapon or anything on him, so he was no threat. So it wasn't nobody shooting him in self-defense. It was nothing like that. In our community, it is kind of hard because people make assumptions. and Well, he must have been doing something. He has to. He doesn't have any business, or they automatically... Drugs or involved, or any, you know, something like that. It's always something that, well, what did he do to, or what was he doing to, you know, make this happen? He was standing outside with his companion. Travis was loved by, you know, many people, and they took a good person away from his family and from his friends. You know, it'll never bring him back, but at least I don't have to constantly wonder, you know, what happened to my brother.
0: Travis's daughter, who was only nine when he died, graduated with honors last year. Taisha knows that he would have been very proud. She's angry, too, though, that he's missed out on so much. If you have any information regarding the murder of Travis Smith, please call North Augusta Public Safety at 803-279-2121. You can also call Crime Stoppers of the Midlands, they will pass the tip on, but according to our communication with NAPS, Crime Stoppers is no longer offering rewards for tips in their area. Next time on the Fall Line, we're heading to Middle Georgia, to the tiny town of Tennell. That's where Sonia Tukes disappeared in 2004. If you know of a case that should be featured on the Fall Line, there's a link to our case submission form in the show notes and thank you for listening. The Fall Line is an independent show, and we appreciate listener support. It allows us to do research, obtain FOIA, pay our content advisors, and support and donate to the causes we care about. If you try out the products that we advertise, please use our sponsor codes. It really helps. And please take a moment to rate and review our show in your podcast app of choice. And if you're interested in pre-ordering my book, which covers years in my life working on a Jane Doe case and explores the world of forensic scientists who resolve unidentified persons cases. You can find that link in our show notes. The book is called Lay Them to Rest and it's out this October. Pre-ordering the book is a big factor in its success, so I really appreciate it. We'll be sharing some exclusive previews on the feed very soon and if you pre-order your book through Hachette, there will soon be opportunities to gain access to exclusive bonus material like a full-length podcast episode covering a cold case briefly touched on in the book, a Zoom hangout with a special guest, and much more. We'll keep you updated. If you'd like to support the Fall Line and the stories we cover, you can join us on Patreon or Apple Premium. 100% of our Patreon and Apple Premium earnings go toward the Family Therapy Fund, and charitable donation. In the past, the remainder has gone toward the Millbrook Twins Billboard Rent. Their increased reward fund expires in August of 2023. Half of that money will go toward long-term billboard funding, so we will no longer need to pay that monthly fee. So, we'll put that money toward offering more therapy to any family members who are interested. If there is excess, we'll donate each month to one of the family fundraisers, for example, Leon Larellis' attorney fund or the MMIP organization started by Matthew Grant's aunt. Each month, we'll post that donation on our Patreon blog so you can see where the funds are going. The Fall Line is written, hosted, and researched by Laura Norton, with additional research by Brian Warders, Kiana Burgess, and Michaela Morrow. Interviews by Brooke Hargrove. Produced, engineered, and scored by Maura Curry. Content advisement by Brandy C. Williams, Liv Fallon, and Vic Kennedy. And, as always, our most special thanks to Liz Lipka and Sarah Turney. As of November 2022, our monthly charitable donation is going to Season of Justice to support family grant initiatives. Since 2020, Season of Justice has raised more than $1 million in grants for more than 140 cases in North America, leading to six cold cases being solved. But Season of Justice doesn't do this alone, so we ask you to consider donating this month. This month, you can join us in supporting Season of Justice. In order to support our collaboration with Moms and Mysteries, you can share our social media posts regarding the campaign. You can join us today in supporting Season of Justice with a donation by visiting givebutter, That's G-I-V-E-B-U-T-T-E-R, dot com slash Fall Moms, F A L L M O M S, or you can text F A L L S O J, Fall S O J, to 53555. This nonprofit is very personal to us. Let us explain why. So far, five families featured on our show have had their awareness campaign grants funded through Season of Justice, including billboards and similar campaigns for Chido Garabai, Leon Lorellis, Jackie Nguyen and Nutfan, Janice Becky LaPlante, and Matthew Grant. If you are a family member who is interested in applying for an awareness campaign, you can find a link in our show notes. And remember, if you live in an area that doesn't have billboards or where they might not be effective, there are lots of options. Bus ads, radio commercials, yard signs, newspaper features, there's a lot out there. If you need help filling out the application, we will help you. Just get in touch on social media or by email and we will personally walk you through the process. We won't normally be this long-winded at the end of every episode, but we're passionate about this nonprofit. We have seen more families helped in the past year than we could possibly manage on our own. We know how hard it is to raise this kind of money, and we want you to be aware that this resource is available. So seriously, if you don't know where to start, let us know. We're here.